1: Greetings. I'm Tricia Keffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for New Books in Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at Plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. And I'm so excited to bring you today's guest. The book is Climate Action Planning, a guide to creating low carbon, resilient communities by Michael Boswell, Adrian Grev, and Tammy Seal, published by Allen Press in 2019. Hi, Mike. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Tricia. Thanks for having me. Uh, so let's start with, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and your educational background?
2: Sure. Um, I did my undergraduate degree at the University of Central Florida in political science. And at that time, I, while I was doing that degree, I discovered the profession of city planning and decided that's what I wanted to do um, as a career. Uh, So I went to graduate school at the Florida State University in urban and regional planning and did my master's there. Um, I went out and worked uh, for a few years in local government uh, planning, doing pretty traditional stuff, land use, transportation, uh, environmental protection. Um, And then I eventually went back back to Florida State and did my Ph.D., uh, in urban and regional planning. And that's when I took a strong turn towards doing work primarily on environmental issues. Um, at the time, I was focused on looking at um, sustainability and the long-term uh, plan for restoration of the Florida Everglades. And uh, after I finished my PhD, I uh, took a position as a, an assistant professor in city and regional planning at California Polytechnic State University. Um, in San Luis Obispo. And that's where I am today. Um, I'm a a professor there, and I'm also currently the department head. Um, And for about the last, uh, I'd say, decade or so, uh, my uh, interest in sustainability focused uh, more narrowly onto climate change and what we can do from the perspective of the field of city and regional planning to address the issues of climate change.
1: Oh, okay. So you're, uh, I'm in Key Largo right now, so you're a, a Florida native then.
2: I am, yes. I was uh, born and raised in, in Florida, and now I live in California. So I've, I've done uh, two of our big coastal states.
1: East Coast, West Coast. Um, so in your book, what was your motivation for writing this book?
2: Uh, it was sort of twofold. Um, one was that uh, I, you know I have two co-authors on the, uh, the book. One is uh, Dr. Adrian Grieve. She's also a faculty member um, in my department, and the other is Tammy Seal, who's a uh, practitioner in the field doing sustainability and, and climate work, and works for a consulting firm that primarily consults for uh, local governments. And um, Uh, Dr. Grieve and I, a number of years ago, uh, sensing that climate change was becoming a more and more important issue and uh, obviously recognizing that our our students, our young folks, were particularly interested in this issue. We decided we wanted to teach a class um, in climate action planning, which we've now been doing, I think, for almost a decade now in our department. Um, and of course, whenever you're a professor and want to teach a class, the first thing you do is you go f- try to find a book uh for your class. And we couldn't find one, or at least we couldn't find one that we thought did everything that we wanted it to do. And after you know, some consternation over that, we kind of I think jokingly at first said, well, we should just write our own book. Uh, but uh that obviously stopped being a joke and we actually wrote the book. So our, our kind of initial motivation was uh, to, to write ourselves a textbook for our class. Um but as we worked through and began developing the idea, we realized that, you know, there were, we were just seeing this uh incredible increase in the number of communities that were starting to do climate action plans and just not a lot of guidance out there. Um ICLE, local governments for sustainability had put out some guidance and there are a few other things around, but nothing we thought was sort of fully comprehensive. And so we recognized that professional uh, professionals out there in the field of sustainability and climate action were looking for um, a resource that kind of brought everything that we knew about this at the time, very emergent field into one place. So that was our second motivation for the book.
1: So uh, let's start with what is a framework for community action? Um, in your okay, let will just say, like you're, you're teaching us a class here. Um, wh- what can communities do? What what can this book do for, say, the Everglades, the Florida Keys, uh, or California?
2: Yeah, so uh, you know, one thing I always try to make clear is it, it is a book focused at the local level. Um, so we're thinking, you know, cities, counties, communities, uh, maybe even regions. But uh, you know, it's it's certainly distinct from. Uh, state or national or international uh, policy making on climate action. So we're really trying to focus on communities. and of course myself and my colleagues as city planners, you know that's, our, our, that's what we know best. So uh, what we're trying to provide in uh, the book really is a sort of a, a to Z guide on, you know kind of starting from the point of, you know somebody in your community thinks that more ought to be done, at the community level, um, to address the climate crisis. Uh, so what do you do? Where do you even start with this, uh, with this process? And so we kind of, we start there and, and then we describe, uh, we call it a guide, the book, um, but we describe a process that your community can go through to evaluate, um, your greenhouse gas emissions, to evaluate your, um, Exposure, your risk to climate change, and then how you would begin to develop solutions and ultimately implement um, those solutions. Um, And for many communities, this uh, you know this they go through this process and they develop something called a climate action plan, or um, sometimes they're called like a greenhouse gas reduction plan or an adaptation plan, but. Um, but other communities are simply trying to develop uh, strategic policy or programs uh, that would inform you know whatever part of their uh, community that they're they're particularly aiming at. So um, at the you know the if you were to sort of go through our book and follow the process that we've outlined at the end of it you would have developed um, strategies, policies, programs, actions, however you want to describe them uh, that your community can implement in order to, address climate change, and both on the sense of um, what is often called mitigation or reducing how you reduce your emissions, your greenhouse gas emissions, so that your community is, is not continuing to contribute to this global problem, um, but also the other side, what we call the adaptation side, which is recognizing that uh, climate change is going to impact, is already impacting our local communities and how you can uh, prepare and adapt um, to those changes.
1: So how do we do it? Let's say um, I'm in a community just because I'm in Miami. How does a citizen uh, get started?
2: Yeah. So, you know, we've, the book is written primarily aimed at kind of the, the you know, the professional working um, in, in city or local governance and sort of how they would develop this process. But Um, But we've tried to also make it uh, a book that is written in a a language that would be understandable to members of the general public or to elected officials. Um, And so it sort of depends on, you know, who's reading it as to how you get started. And we talk in the book about this notion of there being a climate champion. You know, in some communities, we saw that they engaged in climate action planning because the mayor got inspired around this issue um, and came back to their community and said, "Hey, we're going to, you know, we're going to address climate change." And in um, other communities, we saw that um, you know citizens or community advocacy uh, groups or community-based organizations uh, came together, uh, concerned about this issue, and kind of from a grassroots perspective, began to develop and implement different kinds of. Um, um, strategy. So, you know, it sort of depends on who the reader is as to where you start. I mean, obviously, if you're, you know, if you're an elected official, you're going to use your, you know, your, your, your kind of bully pulpit or your, you know, your profile as an elected official to move your community in that way. Um, if you're a member, if you're, you know, somebody who works in local government, you're the city planner or the public works director, uh, then you know, working through your internal bureaucracy to to move forward on something like this. And if you're, uh, you know, a member, of the, just a member of the public who cares about this in your community, you know, figuring out how to uh, partner with uh, other organizations or like-minded individuals to, you know, raise awareness in the community and and hopefully use that to, you know, trigger, uh, you know, substantive action towards uh, the problem.
1: Um, Well, for our audience, I know that a lot of us have heard about uh, climate change and science and news, but can you give us just a little background on uh, what are we really looking at? You know, um, uh, what's the science telling us? Is it speeding up, slowing down? Is this going to be an exponential curve on uh, greenhouse gas emissions? Where is it coming from, et cetera? Can you give us a little background?
2: Sure. Well, you know, uh, globally, uh, emissions um, continue to rise. Um, And certainly, when we look at a number of the impacts of of climate change, uh, things like sea level rise, um, extreme weather events, extreme heat events, ocean acidification, um, you know, uh, back in my home state of Florida, we're obviously concerned about hurricanes. Um, As we look at the nature of these hazards and the uh, they call the climate signal within these hazards, um, we do see and are expecting to see um, you know, an, an exponential increase in many of these. Um, so uh, the problem, the impacts of climate change are here already, um, and we're starting to experience um, some of them, and we can expect this to get uh, worse rather quickly. Uh, you may recall that um, about a year ago, the uh, Intergovernmental Plan on Climate Change released their report, um, their one and a half degree uh, C report, um, and basically said, uh, you know, we've got we've got 10 years to really turn things around in terms of reducing our um, greenhouse gas emissions if we want to avoid, you know, the worst effects of, of climate change. So uh, it really is uh, you we really are. Already, sort of behind in terms of what we need to do, and the evidence um, is telling us that. And the evidence is also telling us that we have to move um, uh, very fast, and we have to make big changes.
1: Um, Well, you know, today in the news, we're talking about how we're getting ready to have an Arctic cold blast. And (laughs) correct me if I'm wrong. You know, it's been my understanding that you know some people have said that well, it's cold, that means we don't have climate change, but it's my understanding that even cold is another extreme example of climate change. What, do you t- what can you talk to us about that?
2: Well, I always caution that I'm not a climatologist, I'm a city planner, um, <laughs> okay. but yes, one of, the, one of the expectations that we have is that we will see more extreme weather events, uh, both um, you know, heat events and, and cold events, uh, weather is not climate. It's, you know, it's always going to be cold in the winter. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's a normal expectation. But what when we talk about climate change, we're looking at long-term trends. You know, are we seeing increasing numbers of heat waves beyond the historic norm? And, and, and also, also, are we seeing um, more extreme weather events, whether they be uh, rain events or cold air events, um, again, over the long term? Uh, that can be associated with uh, things that we know are being affected by climate change. So, you know, the uh, not to get too technical. And again, I'm not a climatologist, but you know, we we know that uh, uh, as we heat the globe, it is going to affect the way uh, the atmosphere uh, moves and the way the oceans move, and we expect these to result in uh, these sort of wilder uh, weather patterns that, uh, in many places, we're already experiencing.
1: Well, that's true. That's what they were talking about is that uh, weather isn't climate. So right, you're not going to have, you're still going to have snowstorms.
2: <laughs> right, right.
1: Uh, well, you know, in our communities, what is the biggest greenhouse gas emitter in um, our local communities?
2: Well, it, it can vary tremendously. Um, uh, back on the East Coast, if your electricity is being um, generated by burning of coal, then probably for your community, your biggest uh, greenhouse gas generator is going to be the, the use and, uh, or the consumption of electricity. Um, if you are on relatively clean energy, such as we are here um, in California, for example, then for most California communities, our biggest uh, emission sector is going to be transportation, uh, basically burning you know, gasoline and an internal combustion engine. So it's going to depend on which community you're in, and in, in fact, one of the uh, uh, in the early in early in our book, we discussed the need uh, as part of the process of of you know, taking uh, acting on climate in your community uh, is the need to inventory your community's greenhouse gas emissions, so that you understand for your particular community what are the largest sources of greenhouse gas emissions, such that or so that you can then. Uh, develop uh, strategies or policies that target those uh, major sectors. So, for uh, you know, a community that's uh, largely getting its electricity from you know coal, they may want to really focus on uh, alternative energy strategies, um, you know, inter- renewable energy development, uh, rooftop solar, um, better home insulation, you know, better uh, you know, uh, high efficiency new construction, those sorts of things. Whereas, um, you know, community where you're seeing uh, the majority of your emissions come from transportation, then it might be, you know, focusing on, you know, improving biking and walking and transit options in your community, uh, facilitating the transition to electric vehicles by, you know, putting in EV charging stations, those kinds of things to really um, uh, get at, uh, you know, get at that internal combustion engine challenge.
1: Well, it was interesting. Yeah, one of the professors that I went, I did finish my landscape architecture degree at FIU in Miami. And uh, one of the professors, he did like a carbon neutral house, uh, David Rifkind, and he did a solar rooftop and even a gray water strategy in his house uh, as an example of what can be done. But, you know, all these technologies are really nothing new. This is is kind of old stuff.
2: Yeah, we used to um, uh, give a... a presentation pretty regularly I'd go around giving it and I would say climate action planning is good city planning and you know basically the idea was that many of the things that we've been talking about for 30 40 years in in my field of city planning are the are the things that we need to do for climate change there are some novel things uh, that uh, um, are you know we haven't really seen before or some solutions that we haven't really thought about before but Yeah, you know, we've we've been talking about you know the need to, you know, shift people from single-occupant vehicles to biking, walking, transit, micromobility. You know, we've been talking about that for um, a long time, Um, and certainly, um, you know, the notion of uh, solar orientation of development, um, you know, high energy efficiency construction. you know, rooftop solar panels. These aren't, these aren't new ideas um, at all. Um, and so many of the ideas that we need to address the climate change are ones that we have around. Uh, many of them are well-tested. Uh, things like solar, which we've known about for a long time, but the big change there is, is the cost. right? The cost has come down so significantly, uh, and now we're seeing you know, cost parity for solar versus um, uh, fossil fuel uh, combustion. So, um, yeah, a lot of the ideas around there's some not new ideas and some new challenges. Um, I think the big challenge now or the big difference now is is you know the, the urgency. Um, you know, we've always known that you know getting people out of their cars was a good idea for a variety of reasons, uh, whether it be congestion relief or local air pollution. but climate change has really um, indicated uh, that this is now a global um, emergency. It's not just about. Certain communities uh, facing challenges.
1: Okay, well, let's say I'll do a hypothetical. Let's say hypothetically, I'm going to be on a county commission here in the Florida Keys, um, and I want to be an advocate for creating a carbon uh, low carbon community. Um, What are some of the policies that I can implement, and what are some of the challenges? Because, I mean, let's let's get real. You know, the developers generally don't. Don't like it, and everybody just cries, money, 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 and then nothing happens. Um, what are some things that I can do uh, to convince people that this is good policy for all of us Be- before we go extinct? The humans go extinct.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, boy, the Florida—you know—the Florida Keys have a lot of challenges. Um, um, but l- uh, let's talk about solution side in terms of greenhouse gas emissions reduction first, and. And we'll maybe set aside the problem of uh, sea level rise, which is an ex- existential threat to the Florida Keys. Um, but yeah, you know, um, I, you know, there's a number of things that uh, can be done in in most communities, um, and many of which now are uh, either relatively low cost or um, are essentially cost neutral. Um, we're seeing. Uh, many communities begin to adopt more um, stringent uh, building codes in terms of ensuring that we're building um, as high efficiency of a, of a house or a business as we can. Um, and, you know, one of the, you know, I remember paying my air conditioner bill in Florida and it was not cheap in the summer. And, you know, if we can build a really high efficiency house, um, and put in it, you know, the latest technology in terms of high high efficiency cooling. Or even, you know, there there have been some very um, successful experiments in Florida at building housing that doesn't even need air conditioning, although that's a real challenge, but it can potentially be done. But, you know, these things obviously can lower people's uh, costs. So even if it does uh, create a small cost premium up front, the long-term cost of owning a house um, could go down. And There's a lot of good, um, again, I'm not an expert at housing construction, but there's a lot of good studies out there now showing that most of these sort of green strategies around building construction um, um, have relatively short uh, payback uh, periods. Um, Encouraging, or we're now beginning to see cities even mandate uh, rooftop solar. Um, starting next year in California, all new, uh, residential construction will be required to have rooftop solar. So it was done at a, at a state level rather than just a local level. Uh, so those are some of the energy things, uh, probably two of the bigger ones. Um, and then over on the transportation side, um, you know, it's really about providing people, uh, safe and effective, uh, or efficient oper- uh, Options outside of simply driving um, their vehicle, and I think there's sort of two angles to work here. One, obviously, is is to provide alternatives to this to the to the car, right? So um, increasing the walkability and bikeability of our communities uh, through investments in um, infrastructure, um, and also in communities that are large enough to support transit systems to. You know, do everything we can to make sure those transit systems work for people and that's a viable option for them. And then, um, you know, but even even imagining that, you know, in some communities, a car might continue to be you know, necessary um, at times, then, um, you know, we need to accelerate the switch to electric vehicles. I think we're about to see from the major automakers in in the world, we're about to see a, an explosion of offerings of electric vehicles. So I think we're going to see EV cost coming down uh, here over the next uh, five years. Um, but uh, you know, one thing that can be done at the community level is to uh, start to provide uh, additional opportunities for EV charging. So. Um, uh, workplace or shopping destination uh, electric vehicle charging, and again that can be done through by local government through incentives or potentially through uh, mandates. Although a lot of employers are beginning to see now the benefits providing EV charging uh, for their uh, for their employees who are increasingly buying electric vehicles. So I, uh, a lot of a lot of states now have uh, uh, strategic programs to uh, spur investment in electric vehicle charging, and so. Uh, That's one way to go that uh, in terms of local government being able to help um, increase the uh, ease for which people can make a choice to buy an electric vehicle. Uh, You know, you can charge at home. You know, you can do that. And if you know you can charge at the workplace or at your destination, then you're going to be much more likely to purchase an electric vehicle.
0: NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
1: So how am I going to talk um, people into spending the money, or do or community going to have to raise taxes to do these kind of uh, infrastructure uh, projects? Uh, getting down to the nitty gritty, you know, how much is this going to cost? Unfortunately. Yeah.
2: Yeah, um, that's something you always have to consider is, you know, what are, they, what are the cost of these uh, uh, programs? And not only what are the costs, but who bears the cost and who gets the benefit? And these things can get um, complicated at times. You know, we certainly, uh, in the work that I do, we try to pay very careful attention to the equity issues around climate action and ensure that we're not uh, – you know, burdening um, you know particular individuals or groups, and and particularly those who've already been disadvantaged um, in some way. Um, but uh, yeah, cost can be a real issue. But um, you know, in many cases, uh, there's a number of ways. Let me let me try it this way: there's a number of ways to think about this. So, um, in some cases, uh, investments in something like energy efficiency um, have very short payback. So you may have noticed that almost every community these days is switching to LED lighting. Um, And why are they doing that? Well, some are doing that because they know it's good for the environment. uh, and That's their motivation. Um, But many are doing it because, uh, you know, the payback periods are two or three years, and then you're saving money. So this is not, you know, LED lighting doesn't, it might cost you a little more up front, but very quickly you're going to be saving money, and then you're saving money for the long term. So... Um, you know, that's an example of something that uh, is going to save you money in the long term. Um, you know, things that require an investment, uh, you know, let's take, uh, you know, bicycle lanes or, or protected bicycle lanes, which do require uh, funding to support. But we know that the vast majority of our, uh, of our transportation dollars are directed into basically building and expanding and maintaining the roads. Um, and even a, even shifting a small percentage of our traditional funding f- that supports um, you know the kind of the single occupant vehicle into uh, walking, biking, and transit can make um, a big difference. Um, and we've certainly seen um, places both in the U.S. but also uh, European cities that have had um, you know what I would call quote unquote major investments in bicycle infrastructure. But when you look at the total dollars it it just pales in comparison to how much it costs to you know build a parking garage or build a a mile of freeway. Um, and yet seeing tremendous uh, payoffs in terms of how much uh, mode share they're able to achieve. So we always have to look at these costs and benefits, but we can't just look at the cost we I mean we have to look at the benefit you know what is what is the potential? upside of this, uh, both in dollars, but also in achieving other objectives.
1: Well, that's true. I I have, uh, I've been a temporary local in Paris and um, I so enjoyed just being able to use the metro and to walk and it was just very convenient. And the side benefit to me was uh, I could eat anything I wanted and still lose weight.
2: (laughs) <laughs> right, yeah, yeah and that's a uh, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because we often we also talk about co-benefits um, in climate action planning and the notion that you know it's kind of it fits with a good planning idea a lot of the things that we're talking about doing in climate action planning um, really have other benefits beyond that they're good for the environment or they help address the global climate crisis um, you know if if we can make it if we can make it where people feel, uh, you know, safe and comfortable walking and biking to work or to the store um, and it's efficient for them. Uh, not only is that great for the environment, but it's also good for tra- traffic congestion in the community, but it's also good for us. It's good for our, our public health, right? You can uh, uh, maybe drop your, you know, $50 a month gym membership now and, uh, and save a little money that way because you're getting your exercise, um, you know, biking and walking to the places you want to go.
1: Yeah, definitely, because I realized, I was like, you know, I, I I can eat chocolate. I can drink a glass of <laughs> wine. And I'm like, I just did six flights of stairs. I, I can get some moose.
2: <laughs> yeah, we had to pitch the chocolate angle a little bit more, I think, because uh, that's always a good sell.
1: <laughs> um, well, can you give me some examples of communities that are doing a good job of making climate action changes?
2: Sure. And uh, uh, you might recall in our, our book, we we really do in our book try to highlight uh, uh, communities throughout the book um, and, and exemplary communities throughout the book. But we also have uh, a, a chapter, chapter nine in our book, where we um, identify a number of particular communities who we think, um, you know, are, have, a, have a story to tell. They have something um, to teach us. And so, for example, we have you know we have some big cities in there. So we have uh, the city of Portland and Multnomah County, um, and you know they're interesting because they've been doing this work for over 25 years now. They really were one of the early leaders in doing climate action work at the local government, and so. You know they've been doing it so long they have they kind of know what works and what doesn't work and they have a lot of um, um, success stories uh, um, to tell us and you know but we also have uh, smaller communities we have um, for example the city of Evanston um, Illinois and Evanston's interesting because although most climate action planning efforts are led through um, a, a municipal initiative you know the mayor or the city council or uh, kind of uh, gets this process started as a, you know, as a plan within, you know, developed uh, through uh, typical uh, municipal action. But uh, Evanston really, their climate planning process really was built by a group of citizens uh, who came together in the late 90s and, um, you know, decided this was something Evanston needed to deal with. And so they really began uh, planning truly in the community before uh, the city was um Was involved. And then we have, you know, we have places where nobody would be surprised, probably are addressing climate action. You know, we have the city of Boulder, Colorado is in there. And they've done some really interesting things in terms of uh, financing. And uh, this is a story kind of still in progress, but basically they have had a partnership with the local utility. Uh, to um, help provide uh, funding, we were talking about funding earlier. Funding for their climate programs, and of course, you know, Boulder's a, a kind of a stereotypical community that um, is very you know progressive and forward thinking on environment and uh, those sorts of things. But but we also have you know cities like um, Pittsburgh in there, which you know uh, kind of in the industrial heartland, right? And uh, uh, Pittsburgh is is one of the more I think one of the more in some ways visionary uh, cities who have taken um, action on climate change and have really done it through uh, both a grassroots effort, but also building very strong partnerships with the major industries and employers um, in the, in the city. And uh, you know, so we, we try to show that, you know, there's, there's not a, there's not a one size fits all here approach uh, communities vary tremendously in their in their emissions profile and the expected impacts of climate change, but they also differ, you know, in their in their economics, in their demographic base, in their history, uh, in their size, and so we we try to show that um, uh, you know there's there's a there's a path for everyone uh, to follow, regardless of, of the kind of community that you are.
1: Um, so can you give us some other examples of uh, communities that have been successful um, at doing this? And, and how, how much have they actually, when they've implemented these strategies, do you have any um, data on how much they've been able to lower their greenhouse emissions? And uh, I don't know, is there any kind of like climate metric that a community could say, this is where we started and this is where we're at right now, and this is where we want to go?
2: Yeah, for for greenhouse gas emissions, um, uh, you know, for for reducing our emissions, we, you know, we describe in the book a process for measuring and tracking those emissions um, over time, and so there is uh, there is increasingly data out there. Um, we don't do a lot of the kind of data tracking in our book, but we do. We have some other projects we sort of do some of this with, and there are a number now of uh, national and international reporting platforms where communities can report their emissions on a periodic basis. And so we're beginning to have a lot more uh, data now. And um, the the organization ICLE, Local Governments for Sustainability, which is a a national and international uh, nonprofit that's been providing a lot of technical support, um, also does an annual report and often highlights – communities uh, uh, that are showing emissions reductions. Uh, But just for example, um, I mentioned Portland earlier. Uh, Portland's emissions in 1990, and this is going to sound a little wonky perhaps to some listeners, but uh, was almost 9 million metric tons of carbon dioxide. And uh, in 2013, they were down to about 7.7. So they have, uh, despite a city that is growing – in population and a city that is growing economically, they have been able to reduce emissions. And um, just as kind of an aside, that's a it's it's a good to point out too that we have increasingly seen this what we call decoupling, where we are seeing that you know, in the past population growth and economic growth was always highly correlated with an increase in emissions. You know, you you had more people, they were driving more, you had more industry, they were producing more stuff, all good, all good for the economy. Um, But that meant rising emissions. And we've now begun to see decoupling, where we see communities uh, that are continuing to experience um, good economic growth and development, the kind, of course, that everybody wants for jobs and, and economic security, um, but with emissions reductions. In fact, California as a, as a state, um, as a whole state, has managed to do this. We have been reducing our emissions over the past decade and economic development in California and uh, our sort of gross uh, state product has been, uh, been increasing. Um, so, yeah, we've got some, a few stats like that uh, in our book. Evanston has seen an emis- a significant emissions reduction, almost uh, 20% over 12 years Um, And so we do see that communities are are demonstrating success. Um, They're able to measure and report that success. And they're able to do so while maintaining um, a good economy and and arguably uh, improving the quality of life um, in their community. So it really can be win-win if you develop the right mix of strategies um, uh, to implement in your community.
1: Well, I like this. You've got a few, um, let's see, this is on page 303, 10 things you can do right now. I love number 10, of course, because I just, let's <laughs> architecture, just plant trees. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, just plant trees. I mean, it, um, you know, I call this an all hands on deck problem. Um, you know, we, we, need, we, need, we need individuals taking action. We need cities taking action. We need states. We need our national government and we need our international institutions primarily the UN um, also leading on, like, you know, it's not one person or one country or a problem to solve. It's, it's everyone's. And so, um, and there's no silver bullet really either. That's the other thing is, you know, there's, there's not just one thing we can do. And sometimes I'll hear, sometimes I'll hear criticisms and people say, well, you know, why do you, why should this community do that? Or why should I do this? Or why should we do this thing? You know, it it you know it's only a small percentage of emissions, and it's sort of like, well, yeah, but that's sort of everything is that way. So, you know, we're going to have to do a million small things um, in order to solve this uh, problem. But, but most of these are things we know how to do, and most of these things are are good things to do regardless of climate change. So, I'm I'm glad you pointed out plant trees because, you know, is is if we only plant trees, are we going to solve the problem? No. But do planting trees help? Yes. And you know, who doesn't like to plant a tree or have a tree in their community? You know, people love trees. So, you know, if in your city you planted 10,000 more trees over the next few years, you would be helping address climate change. You would probably also be improving your community in general for everyone.
1: Well, you know, just kind of a side note, I think it's kind of funny. You know, in Florida, the most uh, valuable parking space anywhere is one with shade under a tree.
2: Absolutely. Yes. Just it, as long as they're a native tree, no, no, right. uh, no, uh, no foreign trees. We've got enough of those in South Florida as it is.
1: That's true. It's not the closest parking space; it's the one with shade.
2: Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes.
1: And I was thinking about that. I thought, you know, I'm going to talk to these architects because I get a little sidetracked here. But you know, I've always heard this argument. It always aggravates me a little bit because, like. Uh, you know, insurance companies are so against and people are so against having good trees around your house because, well, a storm could bring the tree down. I'm like, you know, these architects are gonna have to start building some better buildings because I want to plant some trees. Um, and uh, I've, I've always heard that. But my parents, they have tons of trees around their house. And I'll tell you, it, um, most people who go there are like, wow, this is so nice. It, it really it increases your property value.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I have um, um, friends and family uh, still in Florida and, you know, some of them live in these kind of beautiful hammocked areas where, um, yeah, the trees do potentially present a risk in, um, in a hurricane. But, uh, you know, I mean, you can't, you can't, certainly can't do things in isolation. You always have to consider uh, the implications and, you know, it's also the case that every solution is not for everybody, right so um, you know if you look at things individuals can do for example you know some things might be harder to do than others if you live in a suburban environment with no trans transit and a, a lot of high-speed roads you know it's it's certainly difficult for you as an individual to make a decision to say walk or bike more you're, you're just not in an area that's that's easy to do so you know maybe that doesn't make as much sense for you but you know one thing that's been very popular is like you know, eating less meat. So there's meatless Mondays. Well, everybody can do that. You know, everybody could you know cut their meat consumption a little bit, and um, ideally cut it a lot, but at least a little um, is something you know everybody could do without really much of a noticeable change in their in their lifestyle. So I think you know um, whether it's you as an individual or whether it's your community, you do have to look at what works for you and what works for your community, and that might be different from what works from the next community. And again, we've seen that in our case studies. We've seen co- some communities, you know, really focus on pursuing, you know, a certain set of um, uh, strategies that are, that look different from the, you know, even a community maybe uh, kind of next door to them. Uh, and it's based on, you know, their, their own local uh, characteristics. So that's, that's part of what this process is designed to do is, is to, um, you know, walk everybody who's involved in the process, the decision makers and the public, you know, through a way of thinking about this problem and developing solutions that make sense for you, as opposed to just saying, well, everybody should do this. You know, um, yeah, we do kind of put the, you know, at the end, here's 10 things everybody should do. And, you know, it's generally a good list, but we, we stuck it at the end and, um, uh, you know, for a reason, right? We, we, we sort of put it there as, you know, Hey, at least, you know, begin to think about doing these ideas, but, um, but really you've got to figure out what works in your community.
1: Um, we mentioned that this is really a a textbook that you wrote for your class. How can, um, educators in even high school or colleges use your book, um, in their classrooms?
2: Yeah. So like I said, it was, it was really written, uh, in that sense. I even joke with people, the book has, um, the book has ten chapters, and that's because at Cal Poly we're on the quarter system, and we have ten weeks in the quarter. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I was, it, it's even that specific in terms of you know how our how our decision making went. But um, I you know it, it, I think there's some I, I would start with. Sort of asking the question for, or I guess folks should ask themselves the question is, what do I want my students to understand about this issue? So just to be clear, our, our book is not about the, the science um, of our climate or climate change, and it's not really even about the impacts of, of climate change. Um, it's really how at a local level to go about solving the problem. So first you have to kind of understand what you want to teach. So, for example, if what you want your students to do is to really understand, you know, why climate change is a problem, how it works, that sort of thing, then I would say, you know, well, I would point you to, and we have this in our book, I would point people to uh, Robert Henson's book called The Thinking Person's Guide to Climate Change, and it's really an introduction to the science of climate change and some, and, and generally how it'll affect um, our planet and generally what we can do about it. So um, if that's your purpose, maybe, you know, that's kind of the thing to read. But if what you want to do is talk to your students about how um, their community and how they can be involved in their community to at the kind of uh, community scale and through leveraging community resources your community could become uh, could both reduce its greenhouse gas emissions um, profile and also adapt to be more resilient uh, to climate change. Then this is maybe the right book for for you. And so I would say, you know, um, you know, can, uh, take a look at it.
1: Um, well, there you go. Well, Mike, Mike, thank you so much for being here today. It's it's been a delight to have you on the show. Um, can you tell our audience, uh, what are you working on now? Uh,
2: I've got several things uh, going on. We host a California Climate Action Planning Conference every other year. We just finished that this year, so we're already kind of in planning stages for 2021. Um, I've got a couple of studies underway with colleagues, including one uh, very much focused on a kind of a question you asked earlier about implementation and what we're really trying to do is, is hone in on what factors um, are necessary, necessary to uh, be very successful in implementation. So you know, how can you sort of ensure that all these great ideas you have are actually going to make a real difference? So we're doing some research on that. Uh, I'm currently assisting uh, a big project with the state of California to update California's Adaptation Planning Guide, which is Kind of similar to our book in the sense that it's a guide for local governments on how to um, adapt to climate change and become more resilient. Uh, And then the final one I'll mention is I'm involved with um, uh, UN Habitat. Uh, A few years ago, started a new initiative called Planners for Climate Action. Um, And it's really aimed at uh, professional planners and planning academics um, and helping us organize together to think about how we can as a profession, do a better job um, in addressing climate change and uh, a better job at communicating what skills and tools we can bring forward uh, to uh, help address the climate crisis. So, those are a few things. I seem to have 10 other things and never enough time, but those are a few things I'm up to.
1: Uh, I'm sure that's going to keep you busy. Well, you know, I have two. I have one last question. What are some things that you do uh, personally to um, help against uh climate change yourself?
2: Yeah, well, I uh, bike or take the bus to work almost uh, every day, um, probably 95% plus days. And the rare occasion I do drive to work because I have to carry some load of something or another, I have an electric vehicle. Um, and uh, I uh, I try to eat as low on the food chain as possible. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm a diligent recycler and, you know, those sorts of things. So, um, but I think the main one for me, the one I, I feel like really has, you know, kind of defines um, my life in, in certain ways is, uh, you know, is, is being a bike commuter, which I really love uh, to do. I'm, I'm lucky to live in a community that has good bike infrastructure. And you know, I have a reasonable bike commute to work every day and, and reasonable weather most days. But um, uh, not only is it efficient, for me, I can actually get to door to door from my house to my office faster because I don't have to hunt for parking on campus. Which anybody who's been on a campus knows that parking is often <laughs> in very short supply. Yeah. Um, so I can actually get to work quicker on my bike than I can in a car. Um, and I get there, and I'm I feel good. I feel invigorated. I think it improves my productivity and and uh, lets me eat more chocolate. <laughs>
1: On that note, thank you, Mike, for being here and uh, for your time this evening. And I hope we uh, hear more from you. Let me know about your next book. All right. Sure thing. Great. Thanks for having me on. Again, thank you so much for listening today. Your book has been the Climate Action Planning, a guide to creating low-carbon, resilient communities by Michael Boswell, Adrian Grev, and Tammy Seal, published by Island Press in 2019. And again, I'm Tricia Keffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida. Your host for New Books in Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at PlantspeopleLove at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.